0: everybody and welcome to our latest episode of Second Features. And uh, I'm Adrian Smith and I am joined as ever by Dr. Laura Main. Hello, Hello Laura. Hi, everyone. And we are very excited to be talking about a film that we've wanted to cover on the podcast basically since we started the podcast. It's been on the list for a long time. So today we're going to be talking about the North Korean film Polkasari. by an expert, we could say, in the film and who's written about it, Travis Workman, uh, who is Associate Professor of Korean Studies at the University of Minnesota. So welcome to the podcast, Travis.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And so um, maybe, well, I guess first of all, Laura, why did you want to do Porgassari so much?
2: Um, I Well, partly because... I've kind of always been oddly fascinated with North Korea um, and you know I read I read kind of books by defectors and stuff like that I, I get like geeky about it oh, okay. um, and when I sort of ran across Polgasari a few years ago and watched it um, I thought it was um, well it was frankly batshit uh, and it was amazing uh, and then I, I looked into the history and then I thought oh my god I, you could not make this up like if you submitted this as an idea to his film studio they'd laugh you out of the room it's, it's ridiculous like the story behind the film i'm sure we'll talk about um mm-hmm. but yeah the you know the the director uh the um dictator of uh a you know totalitarian country kidnapping an author director to make a blockbuster movie It's, it's pretty insane. Uh, so I've kind of wanted to do this for a while. Um, it's it's difficult. I mean, like it's great to have you here, Travis, um, as an expert in Korean cinema, including uh, North Korean cinema, because it is it's very hard to find people who do work on that. Right, given it's very sort of it's a very mm-hmm. sort of very niche thing, and it's it's going to be so hard to find anything out <laughs> about North Korean cinema. Uh, so I'm so glad to have you here, finally.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, there is very little academic work on North Korean film, which I always
0: find difficult in teaching it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, is that because it's very difficult to actually see North Korean films?
1: Um, they're more available these days. Uh, North Korea actually has a YouTube channel now, um, which oh. is a little bit difficult to find, but and it doesn't have English subtitles, but... I've been using that quite a bit in my research lately. But yeah, compared to other film industries, definitely takes a little bit more work to (laughs) access the films.
0: So Pulgasari is probably the film, it's like the big film that that got out of North Korea despite um, Kim Jong-il trying to destroy all the prints.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were earlier examples of North Korean films that were popular in other socialist countries like The Flower Girl and The... 1970s was very big in Eastern Europe and China, but in terms of a cult classic that's viewed globally, I guess Pugasari is probably the most well-known and popular film outside of North Korea.
0: Yeah. Um, So maybe we should talk a bit about the background. As Laura has mentioned, it's got a pretty crazy story. I mean, the story's been told now. There's books, there's um, films. I even heard a radio drama. A couple of years ago on the BBC, but perhaps Travis, could you kind of summarise the, if you if it's possible, uh, <laughs> your kind of understanding of what happened here that that led to Paul Gasari?
1: Yeah, so I think probably the best account in English is Paul Fisher's a Kim Jong Il production, hmm. and I've seen him speak on the story pretty recently, and uh, I think he's done the most thorough research in terms of you know looking at their interviews and the books published about them uh, in South Korea after they uh, returned to South Korea, um, Che Eun-hee and Shin Sang-ho, That is. Um, so relying on his accounting, and I encourage you to read the, that book uh, for a good blow by blow account of what happened um, basically in 1978. So uh, Shin sang okay and Chae Eun-hee, were subsequently, first uh, Shin Sang ok and Choi Yun-hee, kidnapped and taken to North Korea, uh, as Laura mentioned, uh, by Kim Jong-il, the son of the dictator at the time, uh, Kim Il-sung, and eventually uh, put to work to enliven the North Korean film industry and uh, by Kim Jong-il, who was very interested in film as a mode of propaganda and cultural esteem, So Pilgasari was made uh, around six years after their kidnapping in 1985. Um, But prior to that, uh, Shin Sang-ok was the most important director of uh, South Korean films in the 1960s. And he had the first uh, production corporation, Shin Films, in South Korea. And Che and he, his wife, by the time they were kidnapped, uh, they were divorced. Uh, because of his affairs. But um, during the 1960s, they were married and he was the most important uh, director, producer, and she was the most famous actress of many of the golden age melodramas of 1960s South Korea. So through that um, profile, that's how Kim Jong-il got interested in them as potential uh, filmmakers in North Korea who could help improve the North Korean film industry and um, yes, took the extreme tactic of actually kidnapping them um, first Cheyenne He uh, and then Shin Sang-ok um, through Hong Kong and you know inviting first Cheyenne He to Hong Kong to work on a project and then um, taken by ship to North Korea. And then Shin sang in the process of looking into what had happened to the disappearance of his ex-wife. Uh, in Hong Kong, was then uh, taken himself to North Korea.
0: It's pretty incredible. And and I believe um, they actually basically kept him imprisoned for about two years before finally reuniting them. He he went through a pretty difficult experience before then being reunited and and asked to make films.
1: Yeah, I think uh, he was in an isolated rural prison camp in North Korea and um, subject to torture and um, pretty brutal uh, captivity until he was finally released, I think, around 1983 and reunited with Che and Hee. And eventually they started making films. So they didn't start making films in North Korea until 1984. So, yeah, there was first a process of, imprisonment and attempted indoctrination and it seems as if Shin sang got the worst of that in terms of actually being in the um, prison camp
0: and they made them am I right in saying they made them make public statements on television about the fact that they'd gone voluntarily like they were they were made to appear to be defectors which then meant that South Korea didn't believe them later when they said they'd been kidnapped
1: yes yeah and which also to this day, it's not entirely settled. Uh, Paul Fisher uh, takes their story more at face value in terms of being kidnapped and, um, and so forth, but there's still controversy and uncertainty about the circumstances of them going north because of the statements they made while they were working for the North Korean uh, film industry. So, um, yeah, I think um, it's still, somewhat an unknown whether, you know, potentially because Shin Films, as Stephen Jung points out in in another book that's uh, an important academic work on the matter, uh, Split Screen Korea, he talks about how Shin Films had been um, decreasing uh, in popularity and profitability. And in some ways, um, Shin's career as a director and producer was... Um, on the decline and he was getting also in trouble with authorities more frequently in South Korea. So he did, they did have some motivation potentially to defect to North Korea. Um, but that I think Paul Fisher's maybe looked at things most closely and sort of determined that no, they were indeed uh, kidnapped and then yes, forced to um, espouse the virtues of the North Korean state um, yeah. publicly as they worked for the North Korean film industry.
2: Yeah, Fisher's book is really interesting. It's amazing. Um, I've I kind of got it on like an audiobook form, uh, and it's just it's very detailed. Uh, and uh, yeah, I always I was quite, I was I didn't know this already. I was surprised to find out that um, you know Shin Yong Uk was a, my pronunciation is going to be terrible, by the way. Um, but wasn't he from <laughs> a town in uh, that ended up being part of North Korea, um, sort of? on the border and ended up, you know, when the sort of, yeah, the division of the Koreas happened, his hometown ended up being within North Korea and he was in South Korea. Um, So, yeah, it's just kind of fascinating, like he's, you know, being without a home and unable to access, um, you know, his his kind of relatives, his family, his whole kind of life.
1: Yeah, which is a pretty common experience, I think, for South Koreans, many Mm -hmm. of whom, have family um, in North Korea or were even born there in the case of Shin Sang-ok. And that was also one of the motivations, I remember in Paul Fisher's book of the North Korean regime, focusing on Shin Sang-ok because they knew he was from North Korea. And so they thought perhaps that would be more motivation for him to voluntarily uh, work for the regime.
0: And you mentioned um, Kim Jong-il was... uh he loved movies and I understand he had a, he'd amassed a huge personal collection of films from Hollywood and elsewhere that, that he would get sort of surreptitiously through various different um, embassies around the world and he was obsessed with them, I and he wrote a book about the art of cinema oh god
2: yeah I um that's a that's a trip that is <laughs> have you read it Adrian no I haven't uh, well Travis uh, yeah maybe you could tell us a bit about that <laughs>
1: Yeah, On the Art of the Cinema was published in 1973, and the English translation, which is done in Pyongyang, is actually pretty decent. Um, I've been looking more at 1960s film criticism and journalism in a journal called Choson Yonghua, or Korean Film, um, and realizing that On the Art of the Cinema is really a collection of other film critics writings oh. on film sort of formalized and then kim Jong ils name is put on on the book as an author but a lot oh, of what he described wow yeah a lot of what he describes in that book appears you know uh with different bylines in film criticism in the previous decade so that, I think
2: oh god that explains makes so me much. question
1: authorship <laughs> yeah. that
2: just explains so much in terms of the tone of it because yeah bits of on the art of the cinema like there are just paragraphs here and there that read as though like i'm just i'm sitting there thinking okay i'm i could even like expect to see something similar to this in like screen in the 1970s <laughs> And then other bits are very much like, no, this film must be used for, you know, communist propaganda, blah, blah, blah. So it's just this incredible shifts in tone (laughs) that does explain that a lot, I think.
1: Yeah. And some surprising sophistication, you know, to a degree about film, as you say. Um, Yeah, I think in, in the 60s, before Juche realism, there was a pretty active film culture, so... This journal, Choson Yonghua Korean film, has articles on French film, British film, you know, all of the socialist countries and their their films. Um, and even when it's a denunciation of you know bourgeois ideolo- bourgeois ideology and um, Freudianism and <laughs> or whatever they use to criticize Hollywood melodrama, for example. Um, even in the denunciations there there's quite a bit of sophistication about film and filmmaking Mm -hmm. and i think that carries over then into the kim jong-il text yeah Um, i was
2: i was kind of worried about like i was oh like yeah i was worried about the sophistication of it and thinking does kim jong-il have a point about this particular kind of aspect (laughs) of cinema oh my god what's (laughs) happening am i becoming indoctrinated (laughs) sorry adrian
0: (laughs) Yeah, you you certainly, uh, I sort of got the impression from Paul Fisher's book that Kim Jong-il was a kind of reluctant dictator and that he would far rather have been a film producer and just, you know, film was his, was the first thing that he wanted to do, but having to become the dictator because his father died was something he'd rather not have done.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. (laughs) I think, in the, I mean, his father technically ruled until 1994. His death in 1994, so as the son of the political leader, I think he could also focus on film and culture yeah. throughout the 70s, and um, you know, he didn't have to immediately start running the country in a political way completely until the 90s. So, I think that also gave him space to focus on. Filmmaking and uh,
0: and have you seen any of the other films that um, director Shin made before *Polgassari*? Are they available at all in North
1: Korea? Uh, yeah, I I've seen uh, *Hong Gildong is uh, a sort of magical martial arts film about a famous uh, Korean bandit Robin Hood figure. Um, and that's, that's quite an interesting film as well. And it kind of in the same vein of Pulgasari in terms of its incorporation of the supernatural. So um, I would, uh, you might be interested in that, Hong Gildong. Mm-hmm. Um, and Love, Love, Love is his make of the Chunhyang fairy tale, his version of the Chunhyang fairy tale made in North Korea. That one's also available. Um, I actually haven't seen Salt, unfortunately. I know other uh, scholars of North Korean film have seen Salt, which is based on a 1930s uh, socialist, uh, social realist text by Kang Kyung-ae. With, I've been wanting to see that one, but I, I haven't uh, found it yet. But I know others have seen that. So yeah, the others, um, the other films of his are available.
2: right?
1: Um, although... Uh, probably not with subtitles, other than Hong Gil Dong and Love, Love, Love.
2: Uh, well, Paul Gassari kind of does, like from what little I know, it it does seem like a shift in North Korean cinema, right? Uh, just in terms of in terms of the scale and the fact that it is, you know, this kind of kaiju science fiction blockbuster style action movie. It seems like such a such a kind of shift away <laughs> um, from the kinds of film that uh, you know were being made that Kim Jong Il you know was not happy with apparently uh, given you know their the fact that they just weren't as impressive as they could be i guess um so it's just such a shift and yeah maybe we should like adrian you said you had a bit about the plot that sort of um from Ch- travis's oh, yeah. chapter that sort of kind of sums sure. up what happens in the film maybe it's Shall a good time a- to read that out
0: yeah <laughs> okay yeah i have a go so yeah so travis you wrote a chapter um in a book called oh i know i haven't written down the name of the book <laughs> what was the book called
1: uh (laughs) good question uh global
0: science fiction cinema i believe that was it uh thank you yeah so parodies of realism at the margins of science fiction and you've written about the films save the green planet from south korea and uh paul gasari of course and we can dig into some of it's really fascinating the what you've said about the films in here and there was a great emphasis on um social realism and so on but so you point out that Pogasari is based on a folk tale which is interesting to know. Um but yeah so your plot summary here we go. Oh actually, and then you sorry you do say here also that the idea of the oppression and pe- peasant revolution fits the idea of of uh, of realism. But anyway I'll get to the plot. A father imprisoned for making metal tools for the peasant rebels constructs a golem-like figurine out of boiled rice when the daughter spills her blood on it the figurine gradually grows into a monster that helps the peasants defeat the landed gentry. The narrative takes another turn however when the monster's insatiable and automatic need to accumulate metal endangers the very peasants he has helped to liberate and the daughter Ami must sacrifice herself to destroy him. It's a really interesting plot uh, because as you say there, it brings the, the idea of the sort of peasant revolution and all of that stuff, um, but, and, but then the fact that the monster they create threatens to destroy them. There's, like, there's quite a lot going on in there.
2: Ideologically very interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think um, it lends itself
1: to multiple readings, I yeah. think you could say. At least. Mm. Uh, it's not... I mean, I think you could take it in different directions in terms of what it might be an allegory of.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I think watching it, it's difficult not to associate the monster with the Korean Workers' Party in terms of this timeline of revolution and then exploitation by a communist regime, especially considering the circumstances of the making of the film by Shin Sang-ok. But then again, it's... uh, it's always, you know, it's a, it's a, Shinsangok said, oh, there's no ideological content. It's just a uh supposed to be a fun monster film. So, yeah. um, is, I, there a, I, is there a fun of,
2: monster film that doesn't have an ideological subtext? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. That's, um, that's, it's a kind of, <laughs> Not <laughs> an accurate statement, you know, whether, yeah. whatever his intentions were as a director. I think from Godzilla onward, um, of course, political themes are really embedded in the genre. So um, we can't really ignore that allegorical dimension, I think. Uh,
0: which is also interesting to read um, in your chapter that I hadn't realized this that they hired one of the Japanese Godzilla actors to come and be in the rubber suit.
1: Right, yeah. Um, so he had acted in a 1984 Godzilla film. So they, I think they sort of tricked the Japanese special effects crew and rubber suit actor by saying they were going to make a film in China, in Beijing, and then they got to Beijing and then were taken to North Korea to work on the oh, film right. in Pyongyang. <laughs> um, so yeah, by a little subterfuge, they were able to get the Japanese special effects artist to Pyongyang
2: sorry uh, just the parallels with uh godzilla um and you know the the monster being uh, you could yeah read it as a you know representation of the workers party um the monster overthrows feudalism uh and then the monster uh you know keeps growing unchecked like i don't know metaphor for unchecked capitalism and keeps eating everything and the peasants are like stop and then the daughter kind of has to sacrifice herself in order and kind of like the the kind of blatantly just says if you don't stop doing this we're gonna have to invade other countries because we'll need we'll need the their their metal and <laughs> you're eating all of our metal mm. so there's like you could read it as a uh, capitalism you could read it as imperialism um it's very odd but <laughs> mm. <laughs> that the allegorical yeah. science fiction thing is what really struck me um and you know those those the monster as a metaphor for you know xyz an allegorical idea that's me- kind of meant to be transmitted globally <laughs> in those kinds of films right on that kind of scale
1: as a supernatural figure it's uh, it sort of just hangs there as a sign and you can sort of project yeah. different readings onto it <laughs> because it's not a realist film which is interesting compared to north korean realist films which always have the what Kim Jong-il called the ideological seed, which is much clearer um, than when you incorporate a monster. It kind of um, makes uh, for multiple possible readings, I think, in mm-hmm. a way that a North Korean realist film often doesn't.
0: I mean, I was wondering what, in terms of the ideology, how Kim Jong-il would have seen this. Like, what would, what would the monster have been for him?
1: Well, as you said, I think... Uh, it, the monster could also, if you read it in a Stalinist stage theory version of history, this is feudalism, like 13th or 12th century Korea, and then the monster is this power of accumulation that allows for the overthrowing of feudalism, but then becomes exploitative. So that could, if the monster is capitalism and imperialism um, and not the Korean Workers' Party, then um, that's less threatening to the to uh, the mythmaking of the North Korean state. So that's, I don't know exactly how Kim Jong-il read the film, but that's, I think the multiple interpretations at least allowed Shin sang okay to make a film with some controversial lines in it, you know, mm-hmm. and also in the way that it kind of mirrors North Korean realism, the obvious um, sort of implication of, the Korean Workers' Party as this modernizing force in North Korea, whether capitalist or socialist, he was able to implicate, I think, um, the North Korean regime potentially without, um, while also making a film that could be read otherwise and, and approved, you know. But, um, yeah. And then the, there's also the kind of ecological point at the end that Laura mentioned in terms of just the accumulation of resources you know whether it's socialist uh, socialist economy or capitalist economy there's also a kind of um, critique of industrial modernity maybe more generally in the film I think
2: um so Travis uh you talk about the you know the science fiction allegorical aspect of you know Uh, the two films you're comparing in the chapter in it i've kind of been teaching recently on uh basically stuff like uh, Carpenter films and uh, District 9 and stuff like that. Just sci- things with, you know, science fiction concepts, high concept film, basically, that lends, the, you know, films with those readings, they lend themselves to global distribution and they're understood by audiences. The metaphors can be quite simplistic, but you know, that's it's science fiction, science fiction cinema on the face of it. Mm-hmm. Like Paul Desari would seem to be trying to be that, which in itself is interesting, but you kind of, you argue, like, don't you kind of argue that it's the allegory is kind of, the allegorical science fiction isness of it is kind of odd. It kind of works against, you know, realism. <laughs> Maybe you could kind of, you could put that much more, in a much more nuanced way than I can, I guess. <laughs>
1: yeah, I guess um uh, work, working from like Cesare Rone, and other theorists of science fiction who talk about the, even in 19th century European literature, the, the, contemporary emergence of the realist novel and science fiction and how mundane fictions and science fiction uh, were kind of co-constitutive uh, in literary and film culture from the beginning. And so I think with a country like North Korea, a film industry like North Korea's, is where there are very few examples of fantasy films. I, I do write about one uh, 60s film, Hongbu um, Joon about, it was another kind of, Mystical, f- mythical, fairy tale um, film, but very few uh, sci fi or fantasy films in North Korea. So I think it's an example of where you can really see this tension between versions of realism and then science fiction speculation or fantasy speculation in a really acute way um, because Pulgasari is so directly in conversation with the conventions of Juche realism. So I guess in writing about the film, I was interested in, in that tension between mundane films and speculative films, and sort of used Pulgasari as an example mm. to see um, how this interaction works more broadly in a film industry or in a literary culture. So yeah, there are there are shots in the in the film that I focus on that are basically quoting what. Uh, scholars of socialist realism call a socialist realist gaze of the peasant, say, or worker looking into the future or party cater, kind of looking at the horizon of the socialist future. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are scenes of characters doing that, but um, gazing instead at the monster, for example, or the monster uh, looking down at them. Um, so in some ways, optically, the monster's kind of positioned in this typical socialist realist sovereign position in many um so even at the level of film form it's mm-hmm. interesting to look at oh this is how a socialist realist film would represent stalin for example um not really Il Sung because he doesn't tend to appear as a character in on screen in north korean films mm-hmm. but that kind of framing of uh The socialist realist sovereign and then comparing the kind of fantastic version of that with the monster it creates this interesting tension between the realist films and the yeah it's
2: fascinating uh you also mentioned the word parody in 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 relation to pulgasari and you know elements of the film do seem to be very you know lent they tend towards parody whether or not how how far that's intentional or not i'm not entirely sure um yeah, yeah, you that think, could yeah. also
1: be our way of experiencing the.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. So I'm quite I was kind of careful not to read it that way, but yeah.
1: <laughs> no, but I mean, I used the word parody, but then later I thought, well, I don't know how much of a parody this would have been for the North Korean audiences, or you know, um, it feels like a parody watching it, um, but uh, that's maybe just sort of our secondhand viewing of it, because it is a pretty funny film to watch, I mean, especially you, at a screening.
0: Do you know whether the North Korean audiences would have been familiar with the kaiju film? Or was it just Kim Jong-il that had it in his own private collection?
1: That's a good question. I don't actually know that. Uh, I think a lot of... It was such a popular film, I assume most of the audience wouldn't have had access to kaiju films or seen them in the theatre. Mm-hmm. Some of the... You know, upper class people in the, in Pyongyang perhaps had been able to access Godzilla, for example. Being
0: to one of Kim Jong Il's private parties,
1: private parties for yeah. something,
0: <laughs> yeah, or screenings. I mean, my understanding is because obviously this was like the long, the long game for the, for the director for Shin sang and his wife was that they were making films in an attempt to escape, right? Like that was their long term goal was to. Be so successful that they could go and f- to film festivals and travel, and that was like how they thought they would get out. And that—that's I mean, this was the film that ultimately helped them escape. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, after this film and its successes, they weren't tracked as
1: closely when they went to Vienna, where the uh, Shin Film Studios were internationally located, and so they were able to escaped from Vienna because they were being watched a little less closely and had achieved a certain status in North Korea and so the assumption was that they no longer wanted to escape so yeah it did enable them to to leave
0: yeah but Kim Jong-il wanted this film he thought this would be the film that would launch North Korean popular cinema like globally that was his that was his ambition I think was that
1: right yeah I think that was the ambition with Hong Gildong looks a little bit like a Hong Kong wuxia film, martial arts film, um, and and Purugasari looks like a kaiju film. So it's going back to that question of genre. It's interesting that in trying to go global or have have a kind of international or global appeal, as uh, Laura mentioned, they turn to these other genres other than juche realism. To try to create some translatability, I, I suppose, mm. to the global film industries.
0: You, know. you, you mentioned Jucha there. Could you describe for us a little bit of, sort of what the Jucha philosophy is for anyone who's not familiar with North Korean um, ideology, I suppose? Yeah.
2: Which would be most of us, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's something
0: something that does come up and it's obviously mentioned a lot in in the Kim Jong-il production book. It's a really interesting concept.
1: Yeah, so Juche is usually translated self-reliance, but technically speaking, it's a translation of subjectivity um, and actually like acting subjectivity, so practical subjectivity. Um, And you can actually trace this translation back to the 20s and 30s and Japanese philosophy where they distinguish between like the thinking subject and the acting subject. So Juche is actually a translation of a a Shutai, which is a Japanese translation for the ethical subject, political, moral, acting subject. Um, So that's kind of lost in contemporary translations in terms of self-reliance. It's usually conflated with North Korean isolationism and going it alone and so forth in terms of economy and nationalism, but um, it has this much longer history. Um, And then Kim Il-sung gave a speech in 1955 called, uh, titled Establishing Juche, um, Eliminating Dogmatism and Formalism and Establishing Juche in Ideological Work. So this was a a speech given to propagandists in 1955, and basically Kim Il-sung kind of drawing from the history of talking about the acting subject, particularly in nationalistic terms, Um, used the term to criticize the aping of uh, uh, Soviet uh, journalism um, and so forth. He said, oh, they published something in Pravda, and we just translated it into Korean. We're just mimicking the Soviet Union. We need to establish subjectivity. Um, So this is where the the themes of kind of... uh, creative revolution start in the 1950s this idea that uh, especially in the realm of culture Koreans need to make their own national culture separate from the Soviet Union um, and then a lot is made of that speech in the 1960s when they're trying to build up Kim il-sung as a Mao Zedong type leader with his own intellectual uh, profile and ideas, and so Juche becomes canonized as as the North Korean version of socialism in the 1960s. Um, and but uh, interesting, there were a lot. Interesting, there were a lot of debates at that time. We know from Hong chang Yop's writings about who is the subject of the revolution. Again, North Korea surprisingly interesting <laughs> in terms of. You know, some people in the party were arguing the popular masses lead the revolution. Some were saying the party leads the revolution. Some were saying uh, the Juche refers to the human being in general as the master of its own circumstances and that sort of thing. And then, of course, uh, leadership. Kim Il-sung said, you know, that the leader is sovereign and the ultimate sort of subject of the revolution. So, all of these debates happened that were interesting in the 60s, but of course, the Kimil Sanghas version of this kind of leadership cult um, wins out in terms of the idea of subject national subjectivity going forward. And then, um, so that's why in the 70, early 70s, you have the emergence of Juche realism, which is the realist mode that Pugasari is in conversation with.
2: Mm, yeah, and just. I mean, for me, like, reading the film, not a lot of that ideological complexity, the very specific duty ideology makes it into the film I mean obviously this is me watching it many decades later from a completely different background (laughs) and knowledge but I just uh, again it's sort of um, this week me and my students were looking at uh, Snowpiercer and I'm not making a a comparison here but in the sense that we were talking about um, Bong Joon-ho and comparing Snowpiercer and Parasite and uh, the sort of The specificity of South Korea and Snowpiercer is is almost completely lost when you watch Snowpiercer because it's using the language of high concept science fiction global blockbuster. And therefore, a lot of that local specificity, national specificity, gets lost. In Parasite, it's much more complex, very different film. But it's that using that global Hollywood language, that Hollywood genre language, but also, you know, that language of the Japanese kaiju movie to transmit ideas. And then, yeah, that tension, there's tension between national, local, specific and global um it's just it's really interesting <laughs>
1: uh yeah yeah, yeah i th- i mean the classics before shin Sang-ok started making films in north korea were say the flower girl and sea of blood these are films that got attention in the early 70s and they're all set in the japanese colonial period those two films at least and they're about the guerrilla anti-colonial guerrilla revolution And so part of establishing the guerrilla state or this idea that the origins of the North Korean state are in the resistance to Japanese colonialism in the 30s, these films, um, which incorporate operatic elements and are very uh, melodramatic, but focus on the peasants' resistance to colonialism, those were the kind of canonical films that also were viewed in. Eastern Europe and other socialist countries. So, but Pulgasari, yeah, you wouldn't see that necessarily because it's a period drama of sorts set in the ancient Korea. So it looks like it's a, a, a conflict between peasants and feudal rule, not Japanese colonialism and the landlord class. But in terms of the way that the, the bandits uh, resist the king in the film, and even, you know, go off into the forest and train, you know, in order to uh, eventually attack um, the governor and the king later in the film. And it kind of follows the, some of the narrative conventions of um, those films about peasant resistance to Japanese colonialism and the landowning class. The large landowning class. Yeah, it's interesting how the local content is is there, but you kind of don't need that background exactly, um, mm-hmm. unless you want to do a kind of academic comparison between Juche realism and Pulgasari. There is, you can I think just watch Pulgasari and then and, and you know get all of the most important cues, and it's entertaining and in and, and translatable in a way that Flower Girl and Sea of Blood are a little less. Mm. I think although there was interest in China for example in some ways because the national liber- liberation story had some similarities I think to um, Chinese communist films in the yeah. time but uh, yeah um
2: well I, I kind of another thing I wanted to ask about was um just uh, well kim uh, Kim jong-il seems to have such a such a sort of weird relationship with Hollywood and you know capitalism and Hollywood and that kind of modes of filmmaking but also he's a massive cinephile right um and uh you know when I I kind of looked at back at the art of the cinema um a friend gave me a copy as a joke not realizing um I would be absolutely fascinated by it um but uh yeah the the section of the art of the cinema uh again authorship unsure however um he's talking about directors directing for the cinema And uh, there's a there's a subheading which says, uh, you know, this is what the director should director should be. The director is the commander of the creative group and then uh, goes on to talk about what a director is and then talks about kind of how the director in uh, in capitalist countries is effectively working for the sort of an agent of the capitalist producers, not a creative, you know. The, the, not an auteur, not a creative, just doing what the capitalist masters tell the director to. Whereas the director in, in you know, North Korean cinema would be, um, you know, a, create, a creator, someone who would pull together all of the people in the production onto into one sort of, one creative sort of ideal. And then, you know, he's basically describing an auteur, but he's sort of saying that... Yeah. The, the, yeah. He's, he's basically describing, like, a system, the studio system of filmmaking as... Um, <laughs> is very different from what it is Then he's describing what the director should be as a kind of creative artist and auteur everyone even at the technical level should have creative input all of this stuff um it's just very very confused man but like he he kidnaps an auteur he kidnaps someone who is considered to be an auteur and a south korean no less um though i'm guessing he probably didn't make much of that in north korea um but like the just that kind of it just seems so bizarre that conflict between what creativity is what a director is what the you know what what a director should be doing
1: <laughs> yeah
2: I, I didn't actually have a question sorry i just lathered.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no it's uh it is a quite a unique uh, auteur theory
2: <laughs> yeah it's just so odd
1: <laughs> the, the interesting thing is that shin sangok is a very conventional director in south korea so mm-hmm. He's mostly known for recreating the Hollywood continuity system in terms of editing and film production um, in a very technically advanced way in the 1960s. So in some ways, he's not and a- he's definitely not an auteur in the new wave sense um well uh yes yeah, so a- i'm just i'm using <laughs> that
2: a very sort of simplistic um, applied way that probably doesn't fit um but yeah i guess i guess like as a no, as not, a no not at all it's very just very i guess well-known respected director you know top of the field i guess would that would that describe him yeah. in uh south korean cinema
1: yes yeah no yeah. i was uh actually agreeing with what Kim Jong-il was saying in terms of critiquing the role of director as amateurs on scène or whatever the French New Wave called oh, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, A yeah. very conventional Hollywood directors So, um, he does, it's, it's unclear exactly, um, why he chose Shin sang other than, um, you know, I think it was more, yeah, like you said, just his, how well known he was, um, But yeah, it's a theory of auteurship uh, without the same kind of um, sort of new wave idea of of an artistic cinema. So I think Mm -hmm. we think of what what does Kim Jong-il mean by art, I guess, in talking about on the art of the cinema. Um, It's it's not um, necessarily breaking with convention or introducing jump cuts or, you know, playing with Hollywood film form. And uh, I think... um, it is wrapped up in the idea of, of Juche as um, a collective creative enterprise um, and the metaphors between you know, what the director does and what the leader does in terms of create, actively creating society. Um, I think those are themes of, I think, socialist realist filmmaking, going back to the Soviet Union. Uh, Evgeny Dobrenko has this argument about the, Uh, Socialism as a spectacle In the Soviet Union Particularly during high Stalinism so the only Socialism people really Accessed was through the cinema So which does create this um, Kind of Cinematic version Of socialism um, That I think uh, In terms of Kim Jong-il's Auteur theory the idea is that The director is yeah, directing the creative enterprise. But the creative enterprise isn't just that one film, but the whole of society. Mm. And cinema has a role in this kind of total transformation, creative transformation of of society. Um,
2: But interestingly,
1: through very conventional uh, actual filmmaking practices, because socialist realism is very much couched in, you know, Hollywood continuity editing and conventional storytelling too for the the most
2: part i mean my eye kind of went right to it because my background is film history and film historians have these kinds of arguments all the time about um, individual authorship creativity collective creativity collective endeavor (laughs) and i just kind of was reading this going (laughs) you can't see my face i'm making a face Ah. um but yeah that kim young il's uh auteur theory interesting (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh so um Sorry Adrian I have dominated the discussion Uh, Did you have any other
0: uh... Um, You mentioned how He was a relatively conventional filmmaker and It's interesting that after he After they escaped And he sort of struggled For a while in South Korea because primarily people Didn't believe them and they ended up For a while he ended up working in Hollywood um, On the Three Ninjas um, Series of children's Ninja films which is such a sort of Swerve from the kind of films that he was making before,
1: yeah. Um, I guess, uh, well, Paul Fisher, when he was talking about why he spent so much time researching and writing that book, said he had seen the three ninjas when he was a kid, and then when he found out about the story and then yeah. put all of the pieces together, he became totally fascinated with, yeah. you know, how did he end up in Hollywood making these, um. Kind of schlocky, although I, I I don't know I haven't seen uh, the Three Ninjas trilogy, but um, I think um, the way that uh, he explained it, and it was, and I'm relying a lot on you know his work, but uh, and it seemed convincing to me was that Shin sang was just driven to make films uh, in whatever way possible in whatever context. So that rather than you know. Uh, film as art necessarily, or artistic innovation. He was really just driven to, in whatever way possible, produce films yeah. in whatever context. We see that with in in South Korea and in North Korea, you know, just agreeing to all of those conditions just to be a filmmaker again is quite remarkable. And then when he was,
2: that's one hell of a context. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah and then um just being able to work again i think uh in hollywood in whatever way possible even if it was three ninjas uh you know or if maybe he felt a slight bit of embarrassment or i don't know uh, in, in helping with those films uh as a, a yeah, cinematographer i, I
0: believe but... i understand he also um attended screenings of Polgasari and like talk to audiences and stuff which is my oh really oh, okay wow. i believe so i'm sure i read yeah. that somewhere i thought maybe we could finish off just by we haven't talked that much about the movie itself just like if, if either of you have any favorite scenes or moments from Gasari or particular special effects that you enjoyed
2: <laughs> i like the little uh little rice um Man becomes a tiny little monster, and he's just like flailing. I just thought it was really. Cute. <laughs> I was, like, oh, was wow. going I
1: was gonna say that too. <sighs> that part when her blood drops on the the rice figure and animates him—his
2: <laughs> little it. arms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but technically, though, it's it it hung together technically for me. I, that's what I would say. I wasn't expecting it to kind of you know to technically be uh a, a competent film <laughs> like using it, I, that sounds really mean but uh i was surprised by how smooth it was uh but maybe maybe you'll disagree
1: yeah i think um it gets a little repetitive narratively in the middle but um i don't know every, every moment is is fascinating especially when you're when in the back of your mind you're thinking about where it was made and and how it was made, like when yeah. the king starts developing a a weapon that will finally destroy the monster, you can't help but have resonances of nuclear conflict in East Asia and 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 the well, other yeah. kind of historical references in the back of your mind. Which it is.
0: It's like an arms. It's an arms race. An arms race. To, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I love the uh, the rocket launchers that they've got and they're firing sort of f- firework missiles at, at him, and one of them hits him in the eye, and uh, and then the, the the yeah the big giant sort of cannon they have at the end, and he catches the whatever they are flaming cannonballs in his mouth and then just spits them back. And it, I mean, it does it seems that at least somebody saw one of at least one Godzilla movie before they made this. Oh,
1: certainly, yeah, yeah. In terms of and it's interesting, too, to see it all in sort of uh, Goryeo-era uh, <laughs> technology and, and costuming. So the period mm. aspect of it uh, makes it interesting, too, because it's uh, not a celebration of modern technology. They're firing the mm. cannonballs out of these stone dragon, <laughs> the mouths of stone dragons.
2: Um, I mean this is me kind of making assumptions with limited information or knowledge of Korean cinema, but looking at Pulga, the look of it, the look of Pulgasari, I was just strongly reminded of um nineteen sixties aesthetics, just in terms of the stock and the makeup. <laughs> it just very powerfully reminded me of the sixties. I don't know. Yeah. Man. I don't know why, but yeah. uh, like that had that sort of feel. Even though it was made in 1985, it kind of looks like it was made a couple of decades earlier.
1: Yeah, you get that feeling sometimes watching North Korean films. Mm. The 60s films feel like 40s films. The 80s films feel like 60s films. Kind of. A, I don't know if it's just a gap in the technology.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Like, would the where would the film stock have come from? Would that be like from Russia or China or something like that? I don't suppose we know. Don't know where they were getting all this stuff. They wouldn't have had their own film labs, would they?
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure, but um, I think the Soviet Union or China would be good guesses.
0: Yeah. Actually, there's one reading. Just um, coming back to the uh, what is what is Paul Gasari. One reading I read was that Paul Gussari is the Soviet Union. And uh, this comes back to what you were saying before about rejecting Soviet um, culture and developing their own. And the monster can be seen as a, having to ultimately, although this, although they've helped North Korea, now they've got to go it alone and get rid of the Soviet Union. But that would be funny if they're saying that whilst also getting all their film stock from the Soviet Union.
1: <laughs> well, that, yeah, that was the irony of a lot of the isolationism is they very dependent on the Soviet Union and later China for economic and military and technological resources. So yeah, I, I, that's, it's interesting that the same uh, kaiju film can have three or four or more different <laughs> uh, readings. Uh, and I think that just speaks to the power of the genre.
0: The great thing is that this film is very easily uh, available. It's on YouTube, various different um, types of quality, but it is out there. I mean, there's not, I think it all comes from some kind of VHS or something. Somehow, a print was snuck out. I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly how we've ended up with this film because I know that um, Kim Jong Il was so furious at their escape that he tried to have the film destroyed. So somehow we've got a copy and it's on youtube so do have a look i mean it's a fascinating film as we've hopefully uh put across in this conversation um so thank you so much travis for spending this time with us is there anything do you have anything um thank you anything that you want to uh to plug whilst you're here in terms of upcoming publications or recent publications that we could read? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. My book, uh, Political
1: Moods, uh, Film, Melodrama, and the Cold War in the Two Koreas will be out in October from University of California Press. And there's a chapter on Pugasari, but also um, Hong Gil-dong and other fantasy films in North Korea and their relationship to North Korean realism. Awesome.
2: I'll be buying that. I certainly will be ordering that for our library (laughs) oh
1: thank you yeah it's also open
0: access so um even better you don't even have to pay for it (laughs) awesome thank you great well there you go so we can watch the film for free and we can read your book for free so what, what more can you ask for uh well thank you so much for doing this uh thank you laura for being here as well
2: of course it's a pleasure
0: so glad we finally uh, found somebody it's taken a while to to find somebody who's actually like you said before not a lot of people write about this
2: well also area, like finding so... somebody to come and spend time with us for an See, hour well, that is,
0: that <laughs> that's awesome. also that's also a factor yeah. <laughs>
1: so thanks so
0: yeah thank you everybody for listening uh, please do all the usual things that we ask you to do um, like us and Subscribe on the all the things. We've got social media. We've got uh, what we got, email.
2: It's better just to use Twitter. Um, Twitter, all that stuff. Twitter.
0: All the links yeah. are in the show notes. I'm going to ask Travis to send me the um, North Korean YouTube channel link so I can put that in the show notes too. I'm sure some people are going to want to check that out. Are you uh, sure? it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, will be fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure that that will uh, yeah. be fine.
1: Uh, that website doesn't work in South Korea. <laughs> no, yeah, it is not.
2: Surprising.
1: It gets
0: blocked. Uh, that's amazing. I'm not, disca- I'm not discouraging you from, from posting it, yeah. but I'll send it to Excellent. you. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, and we'll be back again soon um, with another episode. Bye for now. Thank you so much.
2: Bye, everyone.